I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now skipping ahead to chapter 11, starting at verse 15. 
The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Chris. Um, now, as you heard that read, you realise, yes, we're deep into Revelation this week. So I'm going to pray that we can understand. Um, and can I just check, can you hear it right at the back? Libby, can you? Great. Okay. It's a bit hard having the sound desk so far forward to know exactly what's happening up the back. Um, but how about we pray and then we'll have a look at this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you have given us your word in the pages of the Bible. Father, we ask that as we look at what can be a tricky or confusing part of the Bible, we pray that you give us clarity. Please help us to grow in our trust in Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Right, well, it was a few years ago that um, one of the girls and I spent a long time at Lady Salento Hospital. Um, we had an appointment and we got there early. It was when the hospital was new, so that's how long ago it was. Um, one of the girls had a minor incident at, handball, at uh, netball which resulted in needing to wear one of those um, wrist braces and this was just the simple, short follow-up um, consultation after that. So we arrived, we checked in at the desk, found our seat and got comfortable in the waiting room and there was this man next to us, a very chatty bloke who was up from the Gold Coast with his, with his child. Um, they'd been there for a long time and they warned us that you are in for a long wait. And I thought, well, he's speaking the truth. I looked around the room. There were these dodgy laminated signs around the place saying to expect a two or three hour delay or a two or three hour visit. And for us, yeah, that was two or three hours of waiting, just a bit over two hours for a 10 minute consult. And we could get into the inefficiencies of public health, but we'll leave that to one side for the moment. It was interesting looking around that waiting room and watching how people wait. So some people just sat there with this blank look on their face. Others looked at the television where the volume was really low and they, I don't know what they could get out of it, but they were still watching it. Some played around on their phone. Some people made phone calls. Others chased their toddlers around, keeping them out of things and whatever. Um, some held these sort of half-hearted, awkward conversations with the person next to them, which was a bit what I was doing with this bloke up from the Gold Coast. Others, they kind of had these sort of blank stare or they checked with the desk to see, is there any progress yet, anything happening? Some made trips to the toilet. The guy that we sat next to up from the Gold Coast, he was quite good with his use of time. He made phone calls and arranged to catch up with family members there in the waiting room, make the most of the opportunity to, to see some people. I mean, he's up from the Gold Coast, not going to be up here tomorrow. What do you do when you're waiting? As um, consumers, when we go for takeaway, we want it to be instant, quick. 
that's not always the case. I mean, you go out for dinner, you pay good money to go out for dinner, and you want it to take time. You don't want it to be too quick. You want to enjoy the conversation, the chance to catch up. If you're having a house built, yeah, you don't want a rush job. You, you, you'll be prepared to wait for it to be done properly. There's other things that you would say are worth the wait, worth taking a little bit longer, worth waiting for. Like waiting for the house to be finished well or waiting for the, the, uh, the tradie to do his job well. But we spend a lot of our life just waiting, waiting for stuff, waiting for sermons to get started, waiting for, for people, waiting for jobs, waiting for holidays, waiting for a delivery to come, waiting for the news, waiting for the job offer, waiting for a marriage proposal, waiting for a birth. We even spend time waiting for people to die. We do a lot of waiting. We even wait for things which, deep down, we know aren't going to happen, like teenagers behaving, (laughs) or your husband actually initiating that social outing, or maybe your husband actually understanding you. There's a lot of things we wait for with the vaguest glimmer of hope. We do a lot of waiting, and the trick is, it's a lot easier to wait when you know exactly what you are waiting for. And it's even easier to wait when you know it will happen. The baby will come. It's easier to wait when you have constant progress reports, updates on where you're up to, how much longer is left. But ultimately, it's easier to wait when you know that what you're waiting for will be worth it in the end. When do you give up waiting, though? When do you pack it in and give up waiting? When do you think, it's never going to happen, and you resort to plan B? It's second best, but it will happen. You'll get that one to to happen. Or maybe you might give up waiting for a better offer that comes your way. Sometimes you can give up waiting almost accidentally. You just forget you're waiting. You get so busy doing something else, you forget you were waiting for it. Sometimes you give in to pressure from others to stop waiting and to do what they're doing instead. There are times when we miss out simply because we don't wait well. Why all this talk about waiting? Well, because as Christians, we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting for the victorious King Jesus to be seen in all his glory. We're waiting for him to return. We're waiting for the king who's conquered sin and death to come and rule to bring peace, to put an end to to injustice, to bring the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new city of God. We're waiting to be in God's presence for eternity. And so as Christians, we wait. And while we wait, it's like waiting for anything else. There's always distractions. There's alternative offers. There's reasons to doubt that it's worth waiting. There's reasons to give up. And so when you look at the New Testament book of Revelation, it's like a letter written into the worldwide waiting room, telling Christians how to wait, telling Christians it's worth the wait, telling Christians that Jesus is returning and this is what it will be like when he does return. So just hang on. You read through Revelation and it's a letter that shows us, actually, Jesus has already begun to rule and we're just waiting for him to return. It's like we are stuck in the overlap of the ages. Jesus has come. He's conquered sin and death. He has begun begun to rule. And we're waiting for him to return so that we'll be in his kingdom forever. So I hope as we've looked over 
revelation in the last couple of weeks and here at church and also in growth groups, I hope that you're being reassured as you look at it because it's meant to be a blessing to us, to encourage us to keep waiting for Jesus. Revelation 1 verse 3 says it should be a blessing. So rather than be daunted by revelation, yeah, we ought to be encouraged. We, ought to, um, we don't need to understand all the imagery to make sense of the big picture. I think that was one of the big take-homes last week. We don't need to unravel all the symbolism to be blessed as we read this book. It's not that complicated. It's encouraging Christians to wait well. It helps if you do know the Old Testament because you understand and appreciate the layers in Revelation better, but you don't need to be an Old Testament expert to feel the encouragement to wait on for Jesus to return, to keep simply trusting in him. As you read Revelation, all you need to do is read it with Jesus and the gospel clear in mind. Um, And as you do that, and recognise that this is apocalyptic literature in style, its genre is apocalyptic. And so as you read, you look for the big picture. As you read, you realise that numbers and colours, they're symbolic. You don't need to find literal meaning for everything. And as you keep reading, all those symbols get their meaning. You can find it all. It's all within Revelation. And as we read, we filter what we read through the lens of chapters 2 and 3, those messages to each of the churches. What do I mean by that? Well, as you look at those messages to each of the seven churches, this is one letter with seven introductions to seven churches. And you look at those, those introductions in chapters 2 and 3 and you find there the intended application of the whole letter. At the end of each message to each church... For example, it says the same thing, for example, in 2 verse 7. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Each of the the messages finishes in that way. To the one, anyone who has ears to hear, listen to the one who overcomes, who's victorious. I'll give you, and it gives a glimpse of what you get in God's kingdom, which is all unpacked at the end in chapters 21 and 22. To the one who's victorious, or in the old NIV it says, the one who overcomes. In the ESV it says, the one who conquers. There are just three ways to try and express this this idea of persevering, waiting for Jesus to come. Each of the seven messages finishes in the same way, and that's the take-home of Revelation. Persevere. Keep trusting. The message to the seven churches, it gives us the application that we build on as we keep reading in, deeper into Revelation. It fills out the same application. Our understanding of what John saw on the island of Patmos should spur us on to wait well, to wait for Jesus and for him to return. So what do we make of um, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 and 11? This long stretch. Well, I've given you a sermon outline where I'm telling you what I think you should make of it. Um, As you look at the sermon outline, that's the big picture. This is a message to those who are waiting for Jesus to return. We're being reassured um, that Jesus has triumphed over tyranny and over terror. And as each of the seals is opened, that's what you're seeing happen. And then um, you look through the next uh, few chapters and you see the trumpets, the seven trumpets. You see there Jesus conquers chaos and catastrophe. And so the take-home is patiently persevere with your faith fixed on Jesus. That's the big picture of chapters 6, 7, 8 through to 11. These six chapters add weight to the message to each of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Be the ones who overcome. Be the ones who are victorious. And the way it does that is it shows us Jesus already at work. And it shows us what Jesus will do when he returns. We're meant to see King Jesus victorious 
so that we'll join in the others singing God's, his praises, so that we remain faithful until he returns, so that we overcome, so that we are the ones who conquer. And so these chapters, yeah, they're written into the worldwide waiting room, making sure that Christians will wait well. Um, a few years back, I had a look at the back end of the church website where you could see who's listened, or not who's listened, but how many people had listened to sermons. And any sermon that touched on suffering had more hits. Any sermon that touched on relationships had more hits, I reckon. A few years back, we, we ran this um, Resolving Everyday Conflict course, and there was a lot of interest. I think when you look at those things, it's a telltale sign of what burns us up while we're waiting for Jesus to return. There's no surprise when you look at that. They're the things which chew up our time and our angst. We have our struggles in life, we have our battles, and we can find it hard to just press on living for Jesus while we wait for him to return. The original recipients of this letter, the book of Revelation, they had their battles too. Um, I think though for us in Brisbane in 2020, I reckon our biggest battle is to to stay focused on Jesus. I, I think it's too easy for us to just get distracted and and caused to want to just go with the flow and just enjoy life, become almost addicted to life instead of staying focused on Jesus and living for him. It's like, I think our risk is that we'll forget what we're waiting for. So as we look at these words in Revelation, let's hope they're a blessing to us to encourage us to keep waiting. Let's piece together the big picture a bit more. Um, chapter 6 picks up from the end of chapter 5. That's fairly obvious. I don't know why I put that in my notes, but it does. Chapters 4 and 5 tells you about this vision of heaven with God in the centre. And you go into chapter 5, and there's the lamb who's slain in the centre, Jesus. He's God. And he is the one who's worthy to open this scroll with all the seals, the seven seals. Around that throne in heaven, you've got the 24 elders. Around that, you've got these four living creatures all praising the lamb, praising God. Um, in chapter 5, verse 1, though, there's this dilemma because this scroll, it's bursting full. It's written on both sides, but it's sealed with seven seals. No one's worthy to open it except the line of the, of the tribe of Judah, who's the lamb, who's slain. This conflict of imagery that's apocalyptic gospel expression there. Um, and then as, that's chapters 4 and 5. And then as you come into chapter 6, the lamb, Jesus, opens each seal. So he's in control of the opening of the scroll. And as he opens each seal, stuff happens. Um, And after the seventh seal is opened, just glance ahead at chapter 8, verse 1. After the seventh, the final seal gets opened. Seven trumpets are given to seven angels standing before God. So 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour and I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven and seven trumpets were given to them and then the pattern repeats each of the trumpets gets sounded just like each of the seals got opened Um, John's account of the opening of the seven seals it's clustered into four very quick um, seals getting opened in six verses one to eight and then it slows down for a lot more detail for the next two seals in six verse nine through to the end of chapter seven And then there's the one seal opened, the seventh seal. And when that last seal is opened, you return to the throne room in heaven from chapters four and five with everyone around Jesus and his throne. And then that pattern repeats with the trumpets. 
So the, four, the first four trumpets get sounded quickly, one after the other, in 8.6 to, to 13. And then there's two more trumpets, a lot slower, in 9.1 through to 11 verse 14. And then the last trumpet sounds in 11 verse 15, and you return to the throne room in heaven from chapters 4 and 5 with everyone around Jesus on his throne. That's the big picture of these chapters. That's the shape of it. The opening of the seals and the sound of the trumpets, they are a description of the overlap of the ages and what will happen when Jesus returns. They're a description of the same period of time. And what you see is Jesus is in control. He's the one who's sovereign while we wait for Jesus to return. And we give him this glimpse of what we're waiting for to encourage us to wait well. A couple of weeks ago, Dan Jamaloon visited the men's growth group. We all logged in on Zoom so we could talk more easily. One of the things um, Dan did was gave me a sermon illustration. No, he told us about a friend of his, who, a Thai man, who started reading the Bible from the New Testament. And he had this dilemma trying to understand how this Jesus person was born, died, rose again, was born, died, rose again, was born four times. And if you're, you know, if you're from that sort of um, background where there's a religion of um, you know, reincarnation, that sort of makes sense, but it was battling with, under, and it took Dan a little while to work out, ah, he's reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, as if they're sequential, as if they're one after the other. And I think that's the biggest mistake people make with Revelation. They come into Revelation and they read it sequentially. But that's not how to read Revelation. Expect there to be repetition, repetition different camera angles on the same events. So the seals and the trumpets are like that. It's like Matthew's expression or Mark's expression. They're different camera angles of the same period of time, this time while we wait for Jesus to return. And this little glimpse at what will happen when he does return. It's helpful as you go through Revelation to keep that in mind. Expect that there will be repetition, that you'll see the same events, the same time period described from different angles, just like we do here. Um, Our motivation to wait well comes from knowing that Jesus is in control and knowing what we're waiting for, what will happen when he returns, and that's what we get unpacked for us. So that's, if you like, the very big flyover picture of this huge chunk of Revelation, and that's why we're looking across so many chapters in one go, simply because then you can see it. It can make sense for you. So back to chapter 6, let's look at some of the details. And don't worry, we're not going to go through every verse. It's okay. I was joking about being here till lunchtime. I could if we want to, but I don't think you do. Back to chapter 6. Um, when each of the four seals are opened, one of the four living creatures around the throne calls, Come, and out comes a horse and a rider. And each horse and a rider is sent out across the earth. So have a look at the passage again, 6 verse 1. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. So this is Jesus in control, letting these things happen. And then I heard one of the four living creatures, the one round the throne in heaven singing God's praise, one of the living creatures saying a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and it was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent for conquest. Just try to feel the the picture here. This is from the throne room of heaven. The lamb opens a seal. The creature says, come. And out rides this horse. And then the pattern repeats. 6 verse 3. Then the lamb opens the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And the same pattern continues for the third and the fourth seal. 
as Jesus the Lamb opens each seal, like releasing these things. And the creature calls, come. And out comes the horse and the rider across the earth. And it's not a very nice picture. Um, The first horse is white. Don't get too stressed about trying to nail down what white means. We're in Revelation, so you keep reading and you hope it makes more sense as you keep reading and it does. Look at more what the horse and the rider do. So they're given a crown, kind of permitted to rule. They're bent on conquest. So whatever white represents, I'm thinking something like conquest or seeking victory or something like that. This is not good, though. This is this has got a, a nastiness about it. The second horse is red. Well, that's a bit easier to make sense of as you keep reading because this one's given power to basically create war and killing, blood and red. It all sort of mixes. 6 verse 5, the third horse, it's black. Yeah, we usually think dark and evil, and that's what it sounds like. And the description of verse 6 is of times of famine. The prices and stuff, it's a description of famine, things being expensive. The fourth horse is pale, the kind of pale green colour of death. Putting all that together, it's like waves of tyranny and terror being released across the earth. Rulers, people in power, authorities plundering the earth. It's destructive. But at the same time, verse 8 gives a hint that the power of the fourth, if not all four, is limited and it's controlled, it's contained. These devastating rulers, they're permitted to do what they're doing. What do we make of this? Well, John is seeing a representation of the tyranny and the terror that we live in, that makes up our world, this overlap of the ages, a world where people set off backpack bombs in crowded places, a world where people drive vehicles through busy places, a world where organisations like Islamic State reign in terror, a world where many go without food and housing because of inequality and injustice and the way this world is run. This is a message into the worldwide waiting room, a message to those who are waiting for Jesus to return. It's a portrayal of the world we live in while we wait for Jesus. Despite the chaos, Jesus is in control. He is sovereign. He's actually the one opening these scrolls. There's a reason for these things, these seals rather. Now look what happens when the the fifth seal is opened. So down in verse 9, 6 verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who were being slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. You read that thing. It's a picture of faithful Christians who've died. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, how long? And uh, holy, sorry, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? It's John's vision where he sees these martyrs, those who have died for Jesus, calling out what we want to cry as we look at this. How long are you going to let this happen? How long? God is just. God is good. God's God. And we're longing for him to return when justice will come. And so you know, we join with these martyrs. We cry out, how long? Verse 11 says, Then each one of them was given a white robe, And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed, just as they had been. The martyrs given white robes, colour of conquest or victory perhaps, or righteousness even. But the point is, it's this picture of hope. We're not told how long, but we are shown that God is working to a purposeful plan. And as we wait, we can be reassured that Jesus is in control. 
Nothing's out of control here. And then the next seal, the sixth seal gets opened when we witness this promised judgment. It comes. 6 verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among rocks and mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it look at verse 16 the fear of the lamb and of god this day of god's wrath this day of god's judgment has come um this day of final judgment verse 16 the one who sits on the throne and the lamb are the source of this wrath and judgment and notice the despair from those who are going to be judged fleeing can you see the vision? Jesus triumphing, triumphing over tyranny and terror. God and the Lamb bringing justice and judgment. It's the vision John saw. It's the vision he recorded for us. It shows the world that we live in and it gives us this glimmer of what will happen at the end. It's a world where everything is subject to waves of tyranny, but God hasn't lost control and he will bring justice The seventh seal doesn't get opened until chapter 8. So things slow down in chapter 7. In chapter 7, John describes what he saw after the coming of the wrath of God and of the Lamb and what comes after the coming of the sixth seal. So um, 7 verse 2, you get this picture of controlled judgment with messengers and angels who've been sent to bring the wrath of the Lamb, restraining themselves until God saved his people. It's like we've got a time scale here. God needs to put his seal on his people. He's got to save his people. So 7 verse 2, Then I saw another angel come up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until I put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then we're told there was 12,000 from each of the tribes, and it lists the tribes. At this point, people go crazy with the numbers. You get the engineers involved, and they wreck the thing. 144,000, it's a big number. It's a big amount, but it's an exact number. And you look at the tribes, there's 12,000 from each. This is symbolic. It's like purposeful. God will call everyone he means to. It's deliberate. This is symbolic, though. So you don't read these numbers as literal. The engineering type, they read the 144,000, and they take it literally. And they read all sorts of crazy stuff into this and make up weird religions. But you don't need to do that. This is symbolic. This is a picture of purposefulness. God selecting, God saving. And this thing of God sealing his people so that, that you're guaranteed you're saved. It's like in the New Testament, this idea of the deposit of the Holy Spirit, a guarantee. It's like God, he will, in his timing, ensure that no one that he wants to save will fail to be saved. Um, the way you know, or one of the ways you can tell this, these numbers are symbolic, I reckon, is... Um, God or Jesus in this vision forgot the tribe of Dan. Bother. You look through the tribes and Dan's missing. Um, Joseph's there and one of his other sons. But Dan... It's just one of those reminders. Hey, this is symbolic. This is not literal. 
you don't need to say there's exactly 144,000, there's you know, five spaces left, quick, quick, repent. It's not like that at all. And the more obvious sign that these numbers are symbolic is when you look down at verse 9, you discover it's a multitude. So 7 verse 9, after I looked, this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and the land. It's not about 144,000. That's this picture of purposefulness, deliberate intention. In reality, 7 verse 9, you can't count. Multitudes and multitudes of people. 7 verses 9 to 10, look at those who were saved, what they do. So keep reading for verse 9. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the, and to the Lamb. There they are, joining in the praise of God and the Lamb. Verse 11, we're reminded that this vision takes place in the throne room that we saw back in chapters 4 and 5 as the elders and the four living creatures fall on their faces and worship. So 7 verse 12 Amen. They, they fall worshipping, saying, Amen, praise and glory and worship and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. You could make that into a song, I reckon. You probably have. Can you feel how this vision works to encourage Christians to keep hanging on for Jesus to return? Yeah, this world can be a horrible place. Horrible things can happen. But keep waiting, keep trusting, keep persevering because you know that the end is worthwhile. You know that Jesus has conquered sin and death and he will conquer tyranny. He will conquer terror. The rest of chapter 7 reminds us that in the, uh, reminds us of the end that we're waiting for. So verse 15 of chapter 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will, sh- will shelter them from his presence, with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not go down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what you've got to look forward to. That is the hope for all who overcome, for all who are victorious, all who persevere and wait till Jesus returns. That's the result of waiting well. Waiting well. And then in chapter 8, when the seventh seal is opened... When he opened the seventh seal in 8 verse 1, there was silence in heaven for about a half. It's finished. Done. All over. And then 8 verse 2 introduces the seven trumpets and around you go again. Another look at the same period of time. The same events, slightly different camera angle. Um, I'm not going to tackle that at all today. I'll just make a couple of observations the sounding of the first four trumpets triggers this wave, these waves of chaos and catastrophe on earth. Um, hail and fire, mountains move, water turns poisonous, darkness spreads. And then the sounding of the next two trumpets bring two great woes. But the woes only bring judgment upon those who are not sealed. Um, and then I'll draw your attention to 9 verse 20. Despite all this judgment... Despite all this devastation, 9 verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by this plague did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality and their thefts. Despite God allowing these horrible things to happen, people still fail to repent. 
and then look at how the whole section concludes. Jump ahead to 11 verse 15 where Chris read for us. 11 verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. This look at what will happen when Jesus returns and on it goes. The seven trumpets give you another angle, another camera angle on the same time, the same period of time that the seals show us. Um, They give us a deeper appreciation of the world we live in while we wait for Jesus' return. There's something I didn't tell you about the man in the waiting room at the Lady Salento Hospital. The man that was up from the Gold Coast who met family members in the waiting room, that guy, the chatterbox. His son had a 1pm appointment and he got to the hospital early, got to the hospital at 9.30 for the 1pm appointment. Dumb, I know, but... He was hoping that there might be a cancellation and they might get in early, and that didn't happen. Around about 3 o'clock, maybe 3.30, I might be slightly wrong, he went out with these family members to grab some lunch. And while he was out of the waiting room, they called his name. It's possible to be really, really bad at waiting. It's possible. And there is a risk that we'll forget as Christians, that we are waiting for Jesus to return. There's so much we can fill our time with, so many ways we can keep busy. But the truth is, Jesus is the king. His kingdom is upon us. He's coming. He's returning. And so as Christians, yet we wait. Patiently, yes, but diligently as well and alert the whole time. Because it could be tomorrow, it could be today. We don't know when it will be. And as Christians, we pray your kingdom come. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we strive to live for that kingdom, even now, while we wait for Jesus to return. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that we wait well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're not slow in keeping your promises. You're working to your plans and your purposes. Lord, we thank you that we know you can be trusted. We thank you that Jesus is in control. We thank you for the way that you give us time, patiently give us time, to turn back to you. Lord, we pray that as Christians you'd help us to, tr- to grow in our trust while we wait for Jesus. We pray that we would be ready whenever he does return. And Father, we pray that Jesus would come in his name. Amen.